Today is Wednesday, September the 7th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, and that's www.prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or your comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Peter Eckersley, technology activist, passed away suddenly at 43 years of age. Peter Eckersley is not one of the most well-known names in the computer industry, but his contribution to modern internet and technology are notable. He was recently diagnosed with colon cancer and passed away suddenly on Friday. One of Eckersley's most important contributions to the industry originated from his time at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, when he co-founded the nonprofit service known as Let's Encrypt. Today, Let's Encrypt is a certificate authority run by the Internet Security Research Group, a web infrastructure trusted by all major browsers and Internet companies, including Mozilla, Google, Meta, IBM, Amazon, and many others. Let's Encrypt foster the web's transition from non-secured HTTP connections that were vulnerable to eavesdropping, content injection, and cookie stealing to the more secure HTTPS so websites could offer secure connections to their users and protect them from network-based threats. By 2021, about 90% of all web pages use HTTPS. As of today, it has issued over a billion certificates to over 280 million websites. Peter played a central role in many groundbreaking projects to create free open source tools that protect the privacy of users' internet experience by encrypting communications between web servers and users. Peter joined the Electronic Foundation Frontier as a staff technologist in 2006. He left Electronic Frontier Foundation in 2018 to focus on studying and calling attention to the malicious use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. He founded AI Objectives Institute, a collaboration between major technology companies, civil society, and academia to ensure that artificial intelligence is designed and used to benefit humanity. He will be missed. The battle to get employees back into the office is about to get a little more heated. Many companies experimenting with a hybrid work schedule have said they want employees to be in the office a set number of days each week. But thus far, they have not done much to enforce those mandates, even as employees remain adamant in their desire to work remotely for more days than many CEOs want. But now that summer vacation and labor days are behind us, more employers may start taking a harder line. Just how tough companies will get remains an open question. 
Currently, 69% of mid- to large-size employers say they require employees with jobs that can be done remotely to be at work a set number of days, according to new survey data from business consulting firm Gartner. Of that group, 26% require employees to be on site three days a week, and 17% are opting for a two-day minimum. A small number, 4%, require just one day, while only 5% require workers to be in the office five days a week. Another 4% say they are requiring employees to show up either one day a month, 2%, or one day per quarter, 2%. A full 31% said they have set no minimum. Many CEOs noted for the purposes of collaboration and creativity, they believe fundamentally that the office is a key part of the work ecosystem. Office occupancy is now double what it was at the start of the year, but it is still at just 43% of what it was prior to the pandemic. A lot of companies are pushing for more time in the office after Labor Day, indeed, as COVID becomes a more manageable risk. CEOs are eager to have more people back on site. CEOs are saying it's no longer an issue of safety. Kids are back in school. Should the prospect of layoffs grow, however, that may give CEOs a lot more leverage. The game changer would be if widespread layoffs begin taking place. At that point, employees might voluntarily begin spending more time in the office to protect their jobs. It's likely companies will announce what they expect in terms of time in the office after Labor Day. Many will track badge swipes into the building and might hold managers accountable for ensuring attendance. Until now, such tracking has remained fairly light. When Gartner asked companies if they track employee attendance, half said they are not. Among those that are, they've been relying on data from badge swipes, 40%. Manager tracking, 5%. And self-reporting on digital apps, 7%. In response to an open-ended question from Gartner about whether they would terminate someone who didn't comply, no more than 3% of employers indicated they would. And about 30% said HR or manager will have a conversation with an employee who came in less than required. In other words, if you're not meeting the attendance requirement, you'll get in trouble, but you don't get fired. They would try to make it work because the labor market is still so competitive. So they're not willing to make hiring prom even worse. But for companies that more strongly assert the expectation of employees post-Labor Day, there could be a tougher repercussions for non-compliance. It may first involve a couple of conversations over time. Then if non-compliance continues, in some cases, it could result in job loss. Organizations have given thought about what if employees refuse to do it? What do we do? Ultimately, that could mean a greater willingness to outsource jobs. Once you make the case you can fully do it remotely, they can hire remotely. More importantly, however, Non-compliance with in-office requirements could make an employee more vulnerable to any layoffs on tap. Leaders who require workers to be on site for more days than staffers prefer and threaten them with pay cuts or termination if they don't comply may be creating a longer-term problem. Many leaders' arguments for coming into work are now focused on the need to preserve company culture. 
collaboration, and mentoring of younger workers. CEOs realize it's not a productivity question, but a camaraderie culture question. FaceTime is always important, but workplace research shows that neither culture nor collaboration are necessarily optimized just by having employees spend 40 hours a week in the same room. It also shows that when employees and teams are allowed to schedule their in-person versus remote time, it can boost engagement, morale, and retention. Threatening to lay workers off simply because they don't come into the office enough could also backfire. The tide has not shifted entirely yet. It's still a good job market. Employees have options, and even if the tide turns, don't disenfranchise them through fear and distrust, because fear and distrust will lead to even greater disengagement and turnover in the future. Amazon closes as well as abandoned plans for dozens of U.S. warehouses. Amazon determined to reduce the size of its sprawling delivery operation amid slowing sales growth has abandoned dozens of existing and planned facilities around the United States. MWPVL International Inc., which tracks Amazon's real estate footprint, estimates the company has either closed down or killed plans to open 42 facilities totaling almost 25 million square feet of usable space. Amazon has delayed opening an additional 21 locations totaling nearly 28 million square feet. The e-commerce giant also has canceled a handful of European projects, mostly in Spain. Amazon warned officials in Maryland that it plans to close two delivery stations next month in Hanover and Essex near Baltimore that employ more than 300 people. The moves are a striking contrast with previous years when the world's largest e-commerce company typically enter the fore, rushing to open new facilities and hire thousands of workers to prepare for the holiday shopping season. Amazon continues to open facilities where it requires more space to meet customer demands. An Amazon spokesperson said the following, It's common for the company to explore multiple locations at once and make adjustments based upon needs across the network. We weigh a variety of factors when deciding where to develop future sites to best serve customers. We have dozens of fulfillment centers, sortation centers, and delivery stations under construction and evolving around the world. The Maryland closings are part of an initiative to shift work to more modern buildings. We regularly look at how we can improve the experience for our employees, partners, drivers, and customers, and that includes upgrading our facilities. As part of that effort, we'll be closing our delivery stations in Hanover and Essex and offering all employees the opportunity to transfer to several different delivery stations close by. The chief executive officer of Amazon has pledged to unwind part of a pandemic-era expansion that saddled Amazon with warehouse space and too many employees. The company has typically cut its rank of hourly workers by leaving vacant positions open slowly hiring and tightening disciplinary or productivity standards. But warehouse closing are also part of the mix, and workers are braced for more. During the second quarter, Amazon's workforce shrank by roughly 100,000 jobs to a total of 1.52 million, the biggest quarter-to-quarter contraction in the company's history.
The Seattle company has also been seeking to sublease at least 10 million square feet of warehouse space. When homebound shoppers stampeded online during the pandemic, Amazon responded by doubling the size of its logistic network over a two-year period, a rapid build-out that exceeded that of rivals and partners like Walmart, United Parcel Service, and FedEx. For a time, Amazon was opening a new warehouse somewhere in the United States roughly every 24 hours. The company had decided in early 2021 to build towards the high end of its forecast for shopper demand, erring on the side of having too much warehouse space rather than too little. Most of the closings announced this year are delivery stations, smaller buildings that hand off already packaged items to drivers. Facilities that have been canceled include several planned fulfillment centers, giant warehouses containing millions of items. Amazon operates more than 1,200 logistic facilities, large and small, around the United States. More belt tightening could complicate Amazon's already fraught relations with organized labor. Earlier this year, an upstart labor union started by a fired Amazon worker won a historic victory at a company warehouse in Staten Island, New York. A federal labor official rejected Amazon's bid to overturn the result. Last month, workers at an Amazon facility near Auburn in New York filed a petition to hold a union election there. How much overcapacity Amazon needs to work through is hard to gauge, and some analysts believe the extra space will come in handy during the Christmas holiday season. Researchers wirelessly transmit power over 98 feet of thin air. We could one day charge our phones and tablets wirelessly through the air, thanks to newly developed technology. Researchers have used infrared laser light to transmit 400 milliwatts of light power over distances of up to 30 meters, that's 98 feet, and that's enough juice to charge small sensors, though in time it could be developed to charge up larger devices such as smartphones too. All this is done in a way which is perfectly safe. The laser falls back to a low power mode when not in use. The technical term for it is distributed laser charging, and the particular type developed here manages to be safer and able to go further than previous experiments with similar sort of wireless power transmission technologies. While most other approaches require the receiving device to be in a special charging cradle or to be stationary, distributed laser charging enables self-alignment without tracking processes as long as the transmitter and receiver are in line of sight of each other, says the electrical engineer Jin Yong Ha from Sejong University in South Korea. Ordinarily, the light bouncing components making up a laser cavity would be together in the same device. Here, they are separated into a transmitter and a receiver, meaning the laser cavity forms in the space in between so long as the transmitter and receiver are in sight of each other. In the experimental setup, an amplified transmitter specially treated with a silvery white metal called erbium was set up 30 meters away from the receiver, which was outfitted with a photovoltaic cell to convert the light signal into electrical power. At just 10 millimeters by 10 millimeters, that's 0.4 inches by 4 inches, this receiver is small enough to fit into compact gadgets such as sensors. Smaller smart home devices, such as motion or temperature sensors, 
could be charged wirelessly this way, for example. One day you could walk into an airport and charge your phone while you use it. No cables or plugs are required. Before that happens, though, the team will have to scale up the level of energy that the system is capable of transferring. Part of that process could involve upgrading the photovoltaic cell in the receiver so that it was able to convert more of the laser light into electricity. Another potential improvement could be making the setup work with multiple receivers at once. With a central wavelength of 1550 nanometers, the laser is in the safest part of the infrared spectrum and can't damage human skin or eyes. The scientists made a number of further refinements to improve the efficiency of the system to make sure as much energy was transferred as possible. In the receiver unit, they incorporated a spherical bore lens retroreflector to facilitate 360-degree transmitter-receiver alignment, which maximized the power transfer efficiency. They experimentally observed that the system's overall performance depended on the refractive index of the bore lens, with a 2.003 refractive index being the most effective. It's still early days for the technology, but it's not just with personal electronics that wireless energy transfer could prove beneficial. It could also make a huge difference in industrial environments where cabling is hard to put together or maintain. Using the laser charging system to replace power cords in factories could save on maintenance and replacement costs. This could be particularly useful in harsh environments where electrical connections can cause interference or pose a fire hazard. The United States bans chip makers from sending AI training chips to China and Russia. New restrictions on exports targeting certain chips used to scale artificial intelligence systems impact both NVIDIA and AMD. NVIDIA has struggled in recent months to lagging sales and the ongoing chip shortage, but now U.S. export restrictions aren't making things any easier. U.S. officials are on a tear with their belated bid for chip-making dominance after passing a $52 billion bill that aims to jumpstart American semiconductor manufacturing. Officials are now restricting companies from exporting powerful GPUs to rivals like China and Russia. NVIDIA said in a Securities and Exchange Commission filing that the U.S. told the chipmakers that it had to stop exporting any of its A100 series and upcoming H100 series GPUs to China and Russia. This restriction apparently includes any chip with capabilities on par with the A100 or A100X and also impacts the company's ability to develop its more advanced AI chips that were set for release later this year. Apparently, the restrictions are meant to stop Chinese or Russian militaries from getting any use out of these chipsets. NVIDIA noted that it already halted all sales in Russia this past March following the invasion of Ukraine. The company has said it will still be allowed to ship to other parts of the world via its centers in Hong Kong through September next year. The company wrote that these new requirements on its U.S. government-issued export licenses may impact the company's ability to complete its development of the H100 in a timely manner or support existing customers of the A100. NVIDIA added that they were seeking exemptions, but this might cause them to pull certain operations from China altogether. 
The company had been planning to make $400 million in sales in China, according to the filing. NVIDIA said the following, We are working with our customers in China to satisfy their plan of future purchases with alternative products and may seek licenses where replacements aren't sufficient. The only current products that the new licensing requirement applies to are A100, H100, and systems such as DGX that include them. The United States with the U.S. Department of Commerce spokesperson saying that they want to keep advanced technology out of the wrong hands. Officials are making an out-and-out break for semiconductor supremacy, recently passing the $52 billion Chips Plus bill to in part increase manufacturing on home soil. Later reports also showed Washington was thinking about limiting exports of chip-making tech over to China as well. AMD, NVIDIA's main competitor, was also apparently hit with restrictions. This will restrict the export of its MI250 AI Center chips, though they claim the MI100 chips are unaffected by the ban. NVIDIA's H100 series is advertised as a massive boost for scaling artificial intelligence training. The H100 chip will also apparently be the backbone of the company's upcoming combined CPU and GPU offering. The New York Times reported that the measures apparently impact high-end GPUs and companies other than the two Silicon Valley giants have also been hit with notices that exports are being restricted. A China spokesperson for the Commerce Ministry reportedly called this action a tech blockade during a press conference. Former President Donald Trump had previously imposed bans on U.S. firms like Google, Intel, and Qualcomm from selling chips to China-based Huawei, and President Joe Biden has kept up a similar amount of pressure on other companies linked to the Chinese military. Though, of course, this hasn't done wonders for NVIDIA and their stock price. More importantly, however, NVIDIA and other semiconductor manufacturers are dealing with a harsh reality that less and less basic users seem to be interested in their GPUs. It was reported earlier this week that GPU shipments are down nearly 15% from last quarter and that NVIDIA shipments are down a whopping 25.7%. Sales are also down 33% year over year. NVIDIA has some pretty huge high-end GPUs on its slate coming up for release, which obviously aren't part of new U.S. restrictions. However, the company's most recent quarterly earnings report showed their revenues far below what they originally thought they have thanks to less interest in gaming cards from either gamers or those hoarding crypto miners. Though NVIDIA has asked the United States to lay off its tit-for-tat with rivals like China, the ongoing chip shortage will likely prove an even bigger challenge overall. Japan is a high-tech country, but the Japanese government is still storing data on, guess what, floppy diskettes. Japan still has about 1,900 provisions in its laws requiring data to be submitted on floppy disks and other storage media. Japan may be known for its advanced technologies, but government agencies still require some data to be submitted or saved on floppy disks and CD-ROMs. Well, that's hard to believe. Digital Affairs Minister Taro Kono revealed that an examination of existing laws found roughly 1,900 provisions requiring the use of obsolete storage media. With these rules seen as hampering the government's effort to go digital, 
they will be revised to allow data to be submitted online, such as via the cloud. The government will hammer out a policy by year-end and push ministries and agencies to comply. A task force under a government panel studying this matter met and discussed the relevant rules on how to revise them. It even found some provisions calling for data to be submitted on cassette tapes and mini-discs. Many millennial and Gen Z computer users have never worked with a floppy diskette, and it was a very popular form for media storage to transfer information from one system to another. A floppy disk or floppy diskette, casually referred to as a floppy, is an obsolete type of data storage media. Floppy disks were popular from the late 1960s until the late 1990s, when they were supplanted by the increasing use of other means to transfer files from computer to computer. They were made of flexible plastic coated with a magnetic material enclosed in a hard square plastic case. The first floppy disk was 8 inches across. In the late 70s, floppy disks became smaller with the arrival of 5 and a quarter inch models. And the final floppy disks, which debuted in the 1980s, were 3 and a half inches in diameter. Data were arranged on the surface of a disk in concentric tracks. The disk was inserted in the computer's floppy disk drive, an assembly of magnetic heads and a mechanical device for rotating the disk for reading or writing purposes. And I remember one of my first floppy disks was the 8-inch floppy disk for the Persei drives connected to an Alpha Micro computer system. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers and the workplace, or at least technology in the workplace. And sometimes it leaves the workplace. Sometimes it's a situation where, yes, what we're doing with technology outside of work can impact us other places. Recently, I was talking about things that you should not do on your work computer. And there are, you know, I I skipped over a lot of the obvious ones, but I went with the basics of don't do anything personal on your work computer. Don't do anything work on your personal computer. And in amongst that, I had mentioned that I do not follow or friend anybody that is in my management structure Unless, you know, unless I can, I can't avoid it, but I typically try to keep my social media separate from my work life, your personal life, your work life. They should be separate. Many of the folks I work with actually have no idea that I have a radio show. I try to keep that separate. It's, it doesn't have an impact on anything that I do at the office except for sometimes when I'm doing presentations and I say, this is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down. No, no, I, I don't do that. I, you know, I, I could, but I don't. Uh, so one of the things that that kind of came out of that was a number of questions in regards to why why could you get into trouble for anything that you post on Facebook? or on LinkedIn, or anything like that. And some of these things go in a number of different directions. Some of these things are are, are just a matter of we don't want that kind of person working for us. Now, we have to be careful. The 
kind of person that's working for us. There are certain things which are protected and certain things that are not protected. Let's, I mean, you know that there's uh, the Equal Opportunity Employment Act uh, and, you know, race, your your religion, your age, disability, and a number of other things all go along with that. Look, those are protected items. You cannot get released for that. But, um... What about what about if you're doing illegal activity? Yeah, I, I, you know, here's here's something I came across uh, in doing some uh, some reviews of people I was interviewing. They were on the younger side, and there was a big question as to the age of them uh, when they were, yes, obviously imbibing alcohol. So that's a problem. That's something that can impact your job. Yes, uh, there are other things that go along with that. A, a matter of uh, another person who was supposed to be, you know, just upstanding. He talked a lot about how he liked to do hacking and uh, and not the good kind of hacking, and that that raised an eyebrow because that's not what we wanted in that particular role that I was doing the hiring for. So there are other things along the way too. So let's say you decide, hey, I'm going to take a a quick vacation and I'm not going to tell the boss. Or I goofed off all day. Oh man, I, I, I should have been working, but I goofed off and I posted that up on Facebook and next thing I know, my boss said, hey, I noticed you weren't working. Because you said so on Facebook. Look, there are a lot of these different things that can get you into trouble. So why invite this? And the answer is don't. Don't uh, don't even go down any potential roads because that's just it, it, it's not it's not kosher. It's not good. I mean, we leave aside some of the obvious ones. We leave aside things like you can't post anything about your company. Do not post anything about where you work unless it's, I have some of the best bosses in the world. I have some of the best coworkers in the world. Don't go, oh man, you would not believe it. This idiot that I work with, oh man, he he gave me this piece of paper or whatever it is. You know, he sent me this email and uh, this is what he said. And I can't believe it. Can anybody believe that I have a coworker that's this stupid? That'll get you into trouble. Especially if you find out, oh yeah, I forgot that, that particular coworker follows me. Here's something else too. If you post anything online that is particularly um, uh, too far in one direction or the other in politics, that could get you into trouble too. Let's say you work for a very conservative company and everything you say is all about this left cause and that left cause. I mean, they're not supposed to. It's, It's kind of your personal life, but then again... You you start to paint pictures in people's minds that maybe aren't all that good, that aren't all that great. And we can flip that on its head. You work for a company that's known for their social activism and you're posting online about how you don't believe in it. Even if you're not saying anything about the company, even if you're not saying anything about 
all of that. Yeah, you know, I don't believe in you know man-made global climate change. They could take offense to that. Now, are they going to fire you? No, but you could raise some eyebrows, some negative eyebrows. And that's never anything that any of us want to do in our job. Key thing, think about being professional, not just on work time, but all the time, including the famous me time. That's probably the best way you're going to stay out of trouble. Not the only way, but the best way. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Well, I was disappointed. Artemis 1 second launch attempt was scrubbed. NASA will not pursue a launch of Artemis 1 for the remainder of the launch period, according to an update from the agency after a second scrub launch attempt Saturday. Future launch periods, including those in September and October, depending on what the team decides early next week. But this results in a minimum of delays consisting of at least several weeks. Jim Free, who is the Associate Administrator for NASA's Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate, said, We will not be launching in this launch period. We are not where we want it to be. The stack, including the Space Launch Systems rocket and Orion spacecraft, has to roll back into the Vehicle Assembly Building unless they get a waiver from the range, which is run by the U.S. Space Force. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson reminded everyone that the shuttle was sent back to the Vehicle Assembly Building 20 times before it launched and noted that the cost of two scrubs is a lot less than a, well, a failure. We do not launch until we think it's right, Nelson said. These teams have labored over that, and that is the conclusion they came to. I look at this as part of our space program in which safety is atop of the list. Artemis 1 has been slated to take off Saturday afternoon, but those plans were scrubbed after team members discovered a liquid hydrogen leak that they spent the better part of the morning trying to resolve. Liquid hydrogen is one of the propellants used in the rocket's large core stage. The leak prevented the launch team from being able to fill the liquid hydrogen tank despite trying various troubleshooting procedures. Previously, a small leak had been seen in this area, but it became a much larger leak on Saturday. The team believes an overpressurization event might have damaged the soft seal on the liquid hydrogen connection, but they will need to take a closer look. This was not a manageable leak, said Mike Serafin, Artemis mission manager. This is the second time in a week that the space agency has been forced to halt the launch countdown in the face of technical issues. The first launch attempt was called off after several issues arose, including with a system meant to cool the rocket's engines ahead of liftoff and various leaks that sprung up as the rocket was being fueled. The liquid hydrogen leak was detected Saturday at 7.15 a.m. Eastern Time in the quick disconnect cavity that feeds the rocket with hydrogen in the engine section of the core stage. It was a different leak than the one that occurred ahead of the scrub launch on Monday. The launch controllers warmed up the line in an attempt to get a tight seal and the flow of liquid hydrogen resumed before a leak reoccurred. They stopped the flow of liquid hydrogen and proceeded to close the valve used to fill and drain it, then increased pressure on a ground transfer line using helium to try to reseal it. The troubleshooting plan was not successful. The team attempted the first 
plan again to warm up the line, but the leak reoccurred after they manually restarted the flow of liquid hydrogen. There was a 60% chance of favorable weather conditions for the launch. The Artemis 1 mission is just the beginning of a program that will be aimed to return humans to the moon and eventually land crewed members on Mars. Nelson said that the issues during the first two scrubs have not caused any delays for future Artemis program missions. In the last few days, the launch team has taken time to address issues like hydrogen leaks that crop up ahead of planned launch before it was scrubbed. The team has also completed a risk assessment of an engine conditioning issue and a foam crack that also cropped up, according to NASA officials. Both were considered to be acceptable risk heading into the launch countdown. On Monday, a sensor on one of the rocket's four RS-25 engines, identified as engine number three, reflected that the engine could not reach the proper temperature range required for the engine to start liftoff. The engines need to be thermally conditioned before supercold propellant flows through them prior to liftoff. To prevent the engines from experiencing any temperature shocks, launch controllers gradually increase the pressure of the core stage liquid hydrogen tank in the hours before launch to send a small amount of liquid hydrogen to the engines. This is known as a bleed. The team has since determined it was a bad sensor providing the reading. NASA solves Voyager 1 data glitch mystery. Earlier this year, the Voyager 1 spacecraft, over 14 billion miles from Earth, started sending NASA some, well, data that was difficult to decipher. Now engineers with the space agencies have identified and solved the issue. And no, it wasn't aliens. The strange data was coming from Voyager 1's attitude, articulation, and control system, which is responsible for maintaining the spacecraft's orientation as it hurdles through interstellar space at about 38,000 miles per hour. The garbled telemetry data meant that Voyager 1 was communicating information about its location and orientation that didn't match up with the possible true location and orientation of the spacecraft. Otherwise, the probe was behaving normally, as was its partner in crime, Voyager 2. Both spacecraft launched in the summer of 1977, and Voyager 1 is the furthest human-made object from Earth. The good news is the Voyager 1's telemetry is cleared again. NASA's Voyager 1 probe is finally making sense again in interstellar space. After months of sending junk data about its health to flight controllers on Earth, the 45-year-old Voyager 1 is once again beaming back clear telemetry data on its status beyond our solar system. NASA knew the problem was somewhere in the spacecraft, attitude, articulation, and control system. Otherwise, they use shorthand calling it AACS, which keeps Voyager 1's antenna pointed at Earth. But the solution was surprising. The AACS had started sending telemetry data through an onboard computer known to have stopped working years ago, and the computer corrupted the information. NASA officials wrote in an update that the rest of the spacecraft was apparently fine, collecting data as normal. Once engineers began to suspect Voyager 1 was using a dead computer, they simply sent a command to the probe so its AACS system would use the right computer to phone home. It was a low-risk fisk, 
but time-consuming. It takes a radio signal nearly 22 hours to reach Voyager 1, which was 14.6 billion miles from Earth and growing further by the second at the end of August. Why did it use a dead computer? With the Voyager 1 data glitch solved, NASA is now pondering a new mystery. What caused the problem in the first place? NASA will do a full memory readout of the AACS and look at everything it's been doing. This will help them try to diagnose the problem that caused the telemetry issue in the first place. Engineers suspect Voyager 1 began routing its health and status telemetry through the dead computer after receiving a bad command from yet another onboard computer. That would suggest some other problem lurking inside Voyager 1's computer brains. Mission managers don't think it's a threat to the spacecraft's long-term operational health. Still, they'd like to know exactly what was going on inside Voyager. NASA launched Voyager 1 spacecraft and its twin Voyager 2 in 1977 on a mission to explore the outer planets of the solar system. Voyager 1 flew by Jupiter and Saturn during its primary mission and kept going, ultimately entering interstellar space in 2012 and Voyager 2 reaching that milestone in 2018. Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 will run out of fuel to generate electricity used to communicate and will soon shut down forever. This is not something that people should be worried about. They are, after all, over 45 years old and have long ago finished their mission objectives and life expectancies. The computers aboard the Voyager probes each have 64 kilobytes of memory total. That's about enough to store an average JPEG photo file. The probe's scientific data is encoded in old-fashioned digital 8-track tape machines rather than whatever solid-state drive your high-end laptop is currently using. Once it's been transmitted to Earth, the spacecraft have to write over the old data in order to have enough room for new observations. Both crafts will be running on fumes after most of the plutonium-238 powering their RTGs, shorthand for radioisotope, thermoelectric generators has decayed. NASA engineers will shut down most power operations to utilize the remaining power to transmit spectroscopic, magnetic, and plasma data about the same power used to run a small LED wristwatch. After 2025, both voyagers, having depleted their nuclear batteries, which are both about the same age, will drift off in interstellar space steered mainly by gravity. Both voyages are headed for star systems. What is the most favorable fate of Voyagers 1 and 2? Voyager 1 will be within 1.6 light years of Gliese 445, or about 40,000 years away at that rate of speed. However, I won't be around 40,000 years from now to find out what happened. Voyager 2 is heading to star Sirius in a little under 300,000 years, and will be within 4.3 light years. Both spacecraft are traveling at more than 35,000 miles per hour. It's a small technical fix for humans, but one that ensures that we can keep track of the intrepid space probe as it continues its extraordinary journey into deep space. Even when it's no longer able to communicate with Earth, the spacecraft will continue its travel into uncharted space. The spacecrafts are both almost 45 years old, which is far beyond what the mission plan is anticipated. We're also in interstellar space, a high-radiation environment 
that no spacecraft had flown in before. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, actually, I want to I want to throw a question at you, and and uh, I know that you were dealing with a lot of home automation stuff a while back, and I remember there was something. Oh, this 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 goes back uh, probably eight years, ten years ago. I remember that some some college or some science research center or whatever. They found out that they could monitor the Wi-Fi waves in the house and the reflections off of the walls in the building, you know, the walls that make up the building and figure out where people were. And there was some level of of something going on with that. So they could tell if you were in the living room or the bedroom or the uh, the kitchen or whatever it was. Do you remember anything like that? Did you run into anything absolutely. like with that one? Okay. I, I, yeah. I remember it, and I, I've read about it. It's called RF backscatter. Okay, yeah. And and you use just the universally <laughs> ubiquitous RF presence mm-hmm. as the illumination, and then you look for patterns within that to try to derive the information that you want. Uh, some sophisticated and really expensive RF backscatter is used, for example, in trying to see into houses. Uh, I think fire departments have been looking at it. Mm-hmm. I know I know that a lot of uh, advanced military operations sure, uh, sure. Uh, can can use it from your time local to time. police department. <laughs> Uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was making a making a joke that somehow our local police departments always wind up with a lot of technology that uh, was originally sourced elsewhere. Yeah, for those who are old enough, I will use the key phrase "Breaker One Nine." You don't know Breaker One Nine. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that's a CB. A one, that's one, what it one, is. Was One Nine the emergency channel? No, Channel Nineteen was the Call Everybody channel. Okay, all right. Channel Nine, I think, turned into emergency channel, and and it's. It, you know, nobody's there anyway, so don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, I'll grab my cell phone and call for yeah, help. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, there is. There was another thing that happened about three years after the era you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the mattress companies got into it a little bit. It, it was investigated for medical medical monitoring, uh, elderly monitoring, where they could use a radar, sometimes under a floor, mm-hmm. uh, to look up into a mattress and determine whether or not there was somebody in the bed by detecting the heartbeat. Okay, I remember we were talking about something like that. Okay, go on. Yeah, and, and and the heartbeat measurement is based on motion, of course. So mm-hmm. uh, it could be a Doppler radar or it could be distance measurement to the chest, depending on things like the materials between you and that person. And mm-hmm. since you and I have mattresses that don't include that, we can uh, kind of determine empirically that it didn't make it into uh, an <laughs> off-the-shelf product. Yet. <laughs> uh, what I've been finding recently, because uh, I can't, Pull it out quite quickly. And, oh, yes, I can. Uh, no, no, that's not it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> about the size. If, look, if I'm, you, I'm pulling it, up this some, is radio, but if you could see his desk and all the things that are there, <laughs> <laughs> his his filing system is different. 
<laughs> I have here a small stack of business cards. Yes. Maybe half an inch thick. Yeah. Uh, in a package that size, I can have a complete radar these days. The mm -hmm, antenna, mm -hmm, the radar mm -hmm, itself, mm -hmm, processing mm -hmm. chip, all of that. And at a manufacturing level, we did a segment on this. It could be as low as two bucks, could be a little less. Yeah. And that's thanks to what electric vehicles are doing for, and, and phones to some extent, gesture recognition, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, your foot underneath to open the thing, finding out that that uh, moving object is not a blowing bag, it is a pedestrian, all of that kind of thing. So I started yeah. taking a look at various radar frequencies. Uh, five gigahertz is pretty common and cheap. 24, 5, 6-ish is uh, another band that's being explored. 60 to 80 is millimeter wave radar. None of it's overly expensive. Mm -hmm. You get higher resolution. But the amazing thing is what it can and can't see. So okay. For, so so, uh, so some of the things, it can it see furniture? Can it, it see can through almost, furniture? It can almost always see furniture. Okay. It it can selectively see through furniture depending on how you're deploying the radar and if there are other illumination sources. Okay. Uh, what I was looking at was uh, people. And you're a big skin bag of water, and that's pretty reflective at a lot of radar frequencies. Sure. So you're, you're saying like the TSA, you go in through the TSA line and, you know, people can... See if you're yeah. uh, obsc obscuring stuff with your clothes, okay? Right. And uh, for radars, for a lot of these radars, clothing itself is invisible. Mm -hmm. You know, okay. it, it it doesn't have enough resolution to read your tattoo, so don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And I'm not I'm not being naughty with this, but if if, for example, we want to find out if uh, somebody's carrying a knife, concealed weapon. Sure, sure. Uh, that knife is going to be reflective. Is it more or less reflective than the body? That depends on the frequency and how you're using the radar. So these are explorations that are starting to become easy now that radar itself has become more of a prototype tool now that you can play with it. And boy, am I enjoying the heck out of that. Now, to bring you back, there's another change that's happened for some of the same reasons. Mm-hmm. High band ultrasonics, 60 to 100 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. Clothing's also invisible, and it's gotten tiny and cheap. You've got MEMS and you got piezo. So all across the spectrum, both audio and RF, we've got some new tech to visualize things that we haven't seen before. Very cool. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements of computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation on how to publish a book on Amazon, Thursday, September the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, September the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. 
and their website is limac.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, September the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation on Chromebooks and Alternative, Thursday, September the 22nd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, October the 7th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., and they have online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Their website is acgnj.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on www.prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.